in stillness. Like I'm illustrating stoic ideas with stories from Zen philosophy and vice versa, because I, I always want to be seeking out disparate ideas and diverse ideas. And I think that's ultimately how you learn and, and how you sort of triangulate real truths. Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And on this episode, we continue our run of legendary authors. Today, New York Times number one best-selling author, and I would argue one of the most important writers working today, Ryan Holiday, is here. And we talk about stillness, wisdom, faith, Peter Thiel, and a whole lot more. Uh, this guy's amazing. He's the author of uh, many books, but a, a couple you might know, Conspiracy, which is a fantastic read about how um, Peter Thiel backed Hulk Hogan to take down media gawk, uh, media company Gawker after they ran a um, uh, illicitly uh, recorded um, home sex tape of his. <laughs> he wrote the book about that. He wrote a great book called The Obstacle is the Way. He's well known for Trust Me, I'm Lying. Uh, he's a growth hacker. He literally wrote the book, Growth Hacker Marketing. Uh, Ego is the Enemy, just to name a few. His new book, is, is is fabulous. It's called Stillness is the Key. And look, I know I say it all the time, but what you're about to listen to is a potent example of the power of a dialogue podcast. Ryan is one of the most prolific and important writers of our time. And hanging out in his brain is going to make you a different person. And the only way you can do that is uh, either you sit down and have a conversation with him or stick in some earbuds and listen to a conversation with him. Also, um, pay attention to the part of our conversation about uh, what he learned working for fallen fashion brand American Apparel and um, the secret relationship I had <laughs> with Dove Charney, the founder of American Apparel. There's a lot here. I think you're going to love it. Now, as you know, every company uh, has to have a growth strategy, plan, and a platform. And Oracle NetSuite is the platform for growth, the number one platform, frankly, for high-growth companies. Uh, and companies in over 200 countries, NetSuite allows you to do business however you want to do business, wherever you want to do business in this multi-channel world. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business today and get your free guide, The 7 Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com difference. Because if you don't know your numbers, you can't grow your business. Check out netsuite.com slash different. And um, I also want to remind you that we are living in the data age. And my friends at Splunk are the category queens and kings of data to everything. And what that means is Splunk helps you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. So learn how you can turn data into doing today at splunk.com slash D2E, as in data to everything. That's splunk.com slash D2E. Now, hey-ho, let's go. All right. Well, Ryan, I sure am stoked to meet you. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's my pleasure. Now, yeah, I've been consuming a lot of your stuff in preparation for today and thinking about you and, and so forth. And I don't know why I wanted to start here, but it's what's on my mind. So maybe I can start here. Am I right that you're 32? Is that correct? I think, I think so. 32 or 33. I'd have to do the math. 
Yeah, but in that sort of zone. Yes. And I, I, this may sound crazy to you, but you remind me a lot of Adele. The singer? Yeah. Okay. Because I, my, in my personal opinion, Adele at, you know, the age of 19 and 21, you know, the names of the records, was creating music that I sort of heard it and went, you know, you got to be 50 or 70 to have had that range of emotion and that clarity of ability, right? And so she was just so far advanced in terms of her level of creativity and what she was communicating for a woman who was so young. And um, you just feel like one of these guys who's been here before. Well, I mean, that's an incredible compliment. I mean, to be, she's probably the, the greatest singer of, of, <clears throat> of this generation. So I'll, I'll certainly take it. I don't, I don't know. I don't know about this sort of been here before. I, th- I think one of the strange things about my books that, that sort of contributes to that is that I, I tend to write about really old things. And I, I have a sort of a fascination with history and, and, and sort of really timeless ideas. So I think, I think some of people's perception of me is sort of, uh, comes in the in the glow of that when when you know I, I'm a regular person who watches Netflix and you know uh, drives a car and hangs out, but I, I write about things. You know, I, I write about you know Rome and Greece and the you know the Civil War and th- things like that. So I think I think it's a partly a function of the of the ideas in in the books, but but I I do. It, it was, it's sort of strange for me to be, you know, 19 and, and, and sort of exploring these ideas and writing about these ideas and, and, and coming to a place where, you know, I, I, my, my twenties were spent sort of in research libraries writing books as opposed to, you know, going to bars and, and partying. So the, it, it's kind of a, it's kind of a strange set of circumstances, but I, I do feel, I, I do feel like uh, now as I'm starting to find the occasional gray hair that, that my appearance is matching a little bit more with, uh, <laughs> with, with how I feel and, and what people think of me. <laughs> well, you certainly have that, that quality to you. Um, now, I figure why not jump right into the pool here? Um, in the new book, uh, which is great. Thank you so much for writing it. Um, oh, thanks. I mean, there's so much incredible, uh, so much incredible to dig into, but why not start right here? This notion of accept a higher power. And if I'm not mistaken, there's a part in there where you're sort of talking about some of the 12 step type programs or AA type programs. And and many of them have this religious or faith based uh, component to it. And you say it isn't really about God. It's about surrender. It's about faith. And so why, why this, Ryan? Why yeah, go right uh, here? It's, it's probably the, one of the more controversial chapters in the book. And I, I've certainly heard from some people that, that didn't like it, um, which, which to me is usually a sign that you're saying what, what needs to be said. Uh, I, I tend to, um, I, I got advice a long time ago that you should sort of write what you're afraid about or write what you're unsure about. And so what the, that, the exploration of that chapter is about you know, what, what is this sort of consistent, uh, 
sort of religious refrain throughout human history? Where does that come from? Why is it important? And, and, and what is, what is life like where you have, we have replaced some sort of higher power by, by making ourselves the center of the universe? So I, I don't really get into whether I think God exists or not. In fact, I, I talk a little bit about sort of going from being uh, an atheist to being agnostic, which which is to me a superior position because uh, an atheist says I know, right? I know that there is no God, and an agnostic says I don't, I just don't know. And I, I think that's I think when I was younger, I, I I had some arrogance to believe that I knew, and as I've gotten older, as I've read more, as I've talked to you know interesting people of all different kinds of faith. I just comes down to, I don't know. I wish that I knew. I wish I knew one way or the other, but I don't. And I think the reason that in the 12 step group, in the 12 step tradition that they talk about it is that that sort of arrogance, that, that sense that you know is actually sort of the, the, the common theme in a lot of the problems that people have. So it comes, you know, like uh, addicts will go, well, why does it matter? Why does it matter whether God exists? And it, it's like, it, maybe it doesn't, it, but it matters that you are insisting that you know more than the program, right? And so I think part, part of this idea of surrender is just saying, you know what, like, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, accept this uncertainty a little bit. I'm going to accept that this isn't all about me, that I don't know everything. I'm going to accept that maybe there's something operating behind the scenes that, that has an agenda or a, you know, a perspective or a, you know, an indifference to sort of regular human uh, problems or issues. And, and when we do this, I think it kind of turns down the volume on our selfishness a little bit turns down the volume on the urgency of a lot of our problems. I think it gives us perspective we need to, to focus on what's important. You know, the other interesting thing, and I'd be curious to get your reaction, that sort of um, uh, cliche we've all heard, there, there are no atheists in a foxhole. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as somebody who's had to walk through uh, uh, my fair share of fire in life, uh, I have come to a place, Ryan, where I believe that if you have to go through something, you know, sort of materially painful, um, it's hard to get through it without some faith in something. And, you know, I sort of think of it simply as friends, family, and faith. Um, because when nothing makes sense, you, it seems like God is where we as human beings go, right? But I'd be curious to get your reaction and thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that's right. I think Abraham Lincoln is fascinating in this regard. Like he was sort of like a lot of really smart people. He was, he was sort of, uh, instinctively, uh, anti-religion. He was an atheist for most of his life. He liked to tell jokes about the Bible. He liked to sort of poke fun at religious people. And then after, as he got older, he lost one of his children, you know, becomes president, sees the horrendous, horrific, you know, violence that is the, the civil war. And, and something in him sort of draws him to the Bible. It draws him to, to I, he's not, it doesn't immediately become someone who goes to church every day. Um, you know, he doesn't become some sort of born again Christian, but what he is struggling with is trying to understand, you know, just, just life, right? It just, just the horrible things that human beings do to each other, but then also the wonderful, you know, honorable, amazing, generous things that humans do to each other inside that you know, that awfulness. And, and I think, 
I think uh, I think that's what that expression that there are no atheists in foxholes. It's it's like it's very easy to be glib and certain about things when everything is great, you know, when you're getting what you want, uh, when it's all laid out in front of you in a newspaper article or something. But but when you when you are dealing with the the messy, complicated, um, you know, intimidating, overwhelmingness of reality on reality's terms. I think that is when we struggle to look for something that, that helps us explain what, what, you know, our language is, is failing to properly explain to us. And I have a sense for what your answer might be, but I want to ask you the question anyway. Um, why do you think this faith discussion inside this stillness discussion you're wanting to have with people um, is so front and center or it seems so front and center. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's one chapter and probably 30 chapters in the book, but, but I was just struck by, you know, it's like when you, when you, when you tour Europe or, or, you know, you walk into some old church, you, you experience, I think, kind of a, a stillness or a, a comfort that, that sort of, is 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 rather rare and elsewhere in the modern world. I was in I was in Budapest a few months ago, and uh, I was walking by this this cathedral, and I saw they had some like classical music, com- uh, you know, concert going on. Like it was just starting, and I said, you know what the hell, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go in. And I went in, and I, I you know I sat. I I don't like classical music. I'm not religious, and I I sat there and I listened, you know, to them sing what was I think in Latin or maybe Hungarian for, you know, an hour in, in this, you know, building that's hundreds and hundreds of years old. And, and it was just, you sort of connect into something when you have one of those experiences that makes you think that maybe a long time ago, people had things like we, we can tend to look back at the past and think that we've made all this progress, that we've improved, that we're doing it better than them. And then you experience moments like that and you go, wow, like, somebody would have had access to this on a daily basis in a way that I don't. Maybe, maybe they, they weren't as backwards as we thought they were. Maybe they did figure something out. And there, there was, you know, there's just, uh, there's just something of, about that to me. So I, I, you know, I don't try to present in my books the answers. I think I'm trying to prevent, uh, present questions or things to think about. Like, you know, I, I wrote a book called The Obstacle is the Way, another book called Ego is the Enemy. Um, and then stillness. And, and one of the questions I'll get over and over again is like, okay, what are the seven tips to get more stillness? Or like, you know, what's, what's the, what's the three part framework for overcoming obstacles? And that's not really how I'm writing or, or what I think. I tend to think that these are really big, complicated, difficult topics. But what we can do is we can look back at the past and see all the different ways or all the different innovations that people had that helped them, you know, sort of inch their way closer to this. And and I just think, you know, exploring this question about sort of a higher power is just one of many ways to get there. So maybe let's zoom out a little bit, because I find sort of what you're up to in aggregate fascinating and we can zoom back into the stillness for for sure but um and let me say why it appears we live in a world of tweets and ass selfies and a lot of stupidities and tiktok videos which is true we definitely live in that world yes right so there's a stupidification if if i could call it that or i don't know what to call it whatever there's there's that right um and then and then in the self-help 
human development, entrepreneur world. We have all these hustle porn stars and all these guys. And there's the seven tips to this and the 12 steps to that. And, you know, there's just sort of pop psychology, life bullshit, along with TikTok videos all over the place, right? And here you show up, you know, as we talked about, a, a pretty young guy and say, hey, I, I don't want to do any of that. I want to have a thoughtful conversation about the intersection of a bunch of ideas and philosophies and science and religion and, 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 and so forth on a set of topics that aren't any of that. Um, t- tell me a little bit about that, Ryan. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can imagine when I went to my business book publisher and I said, hey, you know, for my, for my next project, I, I want to write a book about an obscure school of ancient philosophy. They were not, you know, backing up the Brinks truck to decide how much they were going to pay me. It was a, you know, it was a tough conversation. But I think, you know, in every time there's a trend or every time there's a... a you know, a tendency, there's also an opportunity to do the opposite of that thing. And so I think, yeah, as, as much as we do live in a world of sort of short form content or ephemeral content or sort of transparently materialistic content, people have the same hunger and drive for meaning and insight and wisdom. And so I think what I'm trying to do in my books is I'm trying to take, you know, what are the tried and tested things from history, what have smarter people than me already figured out? So it, you know, in, in one respect, that, that sort of harms, uh, you know, your, your potential as an author, right? The decision to, to say like, hey, you know, you can get this other places. I'm just putting it all in, in one, you know, between two covers or, you know, to not, to, to not sort of present this as the, the Ryan Holiday philosophy, but as, you know, the, the philosophy of, of people that I'm kind of just translating and popularizing. There's a downside to that, but the upside is like, you know, that it works, right? Like for 2,500 years, people have been exploring and, and thinking about the ideas that I'm talking about in these books. And, and, and these weren't just like ordinary people. These were generals and athletes and, you know, uh, heads of state and, uh, and slaves and emperors and all, all sorts of interest in fighter pilots, all sorts of interesting professions over the, the many, many centuries between now and then. And, and, and because of this, we, we know, like the, the ideas have been kind of tested in a laboratory. And so that's kind of how I think about it. It's like, on the one hand, I want to do the opposite of what everyone else is doing. And on the other hand, I don't want to sit here and try to make something up when I don't need to. I want to turn towards what smarter people than, than, than me have, have already sort of nailed down. Well, and, and you are a synthesizer, right? You're connecting dots for us. So it's not like you're taking the work of one person and regurgitating it. You're taking the work of, I don't know, you tell me. how. I mean, the number of sources you quote in this book are off the charts. <laughs> <laughs> I did that, but that's my favorite thing. So I'm, I've always been a, a researcher. I always love making connections between things. And so for me, what r- really gets me excited is like to, to find some idea I really like that I hear from someone and go, Oh wow, that's amazing. I never thought about it that way. And then to be able to connect that with somebody else, maybe those two people have never met, you know, they didn't even overlap. Like this is a Confucius and Seneca, or this is, you know, John D. Rockefeller and Marcus Aurelius. Um, you know, sometimes people that would have hated each other if they met in real life, but it happens that the decisions that one of them made 
perfectly illustrates, you know, an idea come up with by another, or it happens to be that two people, you know, 500 years apart had nearly identical experiences and, and came to the, the, you know, sort of the same insight. So, yeah, I see myself primarily as a person who is taking philosophy and illustrating it primarily via stories um, or, or studies or, you know, um, you know, sort of new frameworks for, for, for presenting, uh, the same ideas. And, and look, like part of the reason I'm able to write about these ideas at, you know, in, in my twenties is that, um, you know, I think if, if I was coming up with them myself, it would have taken, you know, 80 years of hard one life experience to sort of, to sort of come to that, that thankfully I, I'm very much standing on the, on the shoulders of, of giants. And so, you know, I, I do try to, as successful as the books have been, I try to rem- remind myself of that pretty regularly. That that the success However, is not a reflection of me. It, well, yes and no, right? So I, I love the modesty, but um, uh, you have to be able to synthesize the ideas and present them. And the other thing is, look, it takes moxie for anybody to step up to the plate on some of these topics you're stepping up on, never mind at 20, whatever. When did your first book come out? I think my first book came out when I was 25. And yeah, that, that is one yeah. of the benefits of being, being young is that you don't, you don't quite even realize just how preposterously, uh, you know, ill-equipped you are to, to, to or, or ill-qualified you are to be talking about what you're talking about. That, that sometimes becomes clear to you only in, in retrospect. Just like when I, I look back at things I did in high school and I go, man, I'm so lucky that I didn't get arrested or I didn't die. Um, I, I, I sometimes look back at topics that I've written about and, and have a little bit of the same feeling. Yeah, but what I love about that, um, having been somebody who took a pretty pretty good whack at it pretty early, uh, and I have a story for you about that in a second. Um, uh, you do it, you know. You have to have that moxie, and one of my favorite expressions, Ryan, is um, um, you have to be stupid enough to think it's possible. And often the younger are stupid enough, right? <laughs> and so, uh, and you definitely have some of that going. Now, um, um, uh, maybe switch gears for a second. Uh, I have a fun story to tell you. Okay. The, so I uh, started my first business. Uh, and today you describe it as a side hustle when I was 12 in Montreal, Canada. And my co-founder, and actually in, in reality, he recruited me to this idea, was Dove Charney. No way. Was it selling t-shirts? Way. Or was it the new No. It was the newspaper. Wow. And then we did the t-shirts. Yeah. Unreal. Yeah. And we were 12. And then I think by the time we did the t-shirts, maybe we were 14. So did Uh, you get arrested with him? I absolutely did not. (laughs) I I know he got arrested selling bootleg Madonna t-shirts outside of the forum. Yeah, we didn't do that. What we did was we did this thing where we sort of tried to organize um uh we called it shoot the bolt we sort of drew a bolt over a set of streets in montreal that had all the kind of popular bars in this one section of montreal and we were kind of doing that so i wasn't involved with him in knocking off anybody's brand (laughs) we were trying to create our own thing but it didn't really go anywhere but the uh 
the one that was earlier was the newspaper and we would write like movie reviews as 12 year old boys and shit and have it printed up and run around all these local delis and cafes and ask them to sponsor our newspaper and they would give us five bucks and we you know we thought we were we were the shit and stuff and so dove charney got me into business <laughs> wow wow that's incredible no i mean you, you do meet certain people i think i think you know dove, dove for for better or for worse is is sort of like one of these characters out of the the pages of history who's just sort of all his all his uh you know uh traits and weaknesses are exaggerated at almost a sort of a Shakespearean level. And it worked really well for him for a very long time. And, and he did a lot of good. And, and then ultimately it sort of brought, brought him tumbling back down to, to, to earth in a, in a painful way as well. And, and actually my, my book, you know, ego is the enemy. I sort of wrote in the sort of, uh, as, as I was consulting, uh, as the company sort of tore itself to pieces. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm both a, a sort of a, I'm, I'm a long, I'm a long time uh, student of the story of uh, both cautionary and inspirational of, of, of Dove's life. And so now with, uh, you know, a little bit of time, is there, what are your kind of main reflections, both on kind of what you learn as a marketer and kind of being in an entrepreneurial environment? And of course, you know, the ultimate, um, I don't know if you'd call them moral learnings or ethical learnings or I know you tell me how you think about what you learned there well um, I'm, I'm talking to you in a, in a in a building that I that I have here in Texas where I'm sort of in the middle of sort of centralizing all of my operations um, I think one of the things that I, t- I took from Dove is that like you don't outsource your stuff you don't send it far away um, you know you don't make ethical compromises in terms of of like you know the manufacturing or the production process that like a, a good leader and a good creative and a good artist is like obsessed with you know visibility with quality with sort of doing things the right way it's like if you make something amazing you won't have trouble you know charging a price for it that that makes it viable it's when you're cutting corners and you're making crap that that ultimately you know you you get locked in this price to you know sort of uh uh, race to the bottom. So that, that was a big one for me. I think, I think what I also took from Dove is, is just the, um, you know, sort of a, sort of a, the, the power of energy, the, the power of passion, the power of sort of not listening to people who tell you can't work. So I, all, all of those were great lessons. You know, as, as a marketer, he was, you know, probably one of the, the, the best of, of, of our time. I think the problem. I remember Dove, reading an interview with him. Uh, <laughs> And it was so outrageous at the time. He was espousing the value of cotton. Yeah. And he was saying about, you know, so-and-so's wearing cotton and Muhammad Ali wore cotton and you know, all this stuff about cotton. And then he says, as he's kind of going through the role, and if Osama bin Laden's still alive, he's probably wearing cotton right now too. And you're like, what the fuck are you yeah. doing? He just can't help himself sometimes. No, I think, and 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 then I think, you know, since I, since I left the company the last five or six years has also been a part of me sort of dropping a lot of bad habits. I mean, I, th- thankfully, none of the really bad habits, uh, were contagious. And, and thankfully, uh, I, that was, that was not what attracted me to the company. Um, but, but just like I remember sort of right after I'd left, um, 
I was calling someone who worked for me and I, you know, it was like 1130 at night or something. And I called them and my wife was like, you can't, you can't call people at 1130 at night. Like this is totally inappropriate. But, you know, I was used to getting calls from Dove at four in the morning. Um, and, and, uh, you know, he, when he had an idea, he would call when he had something, he would, I, I mean, I, I talked to Dove probably every Easter, Christmas, Thanksgiving and other holiday you could possibly imagine. It was almost like kind of a test, right? He wanted just to see what you were doing that day. And, and, and so, <laughs> you know, I, I totally get why the founder of a company would care that much, but it, you know, there was just absolutely no distinction between work and life. And, and like the, the weird part about that is that ultimately in a, in a lot of ways that contributed to some of the poor decision making, like somebody who works that hard without break, without balance, you know, eventually kind of spins off the planet. And that was part of that story, I think. Um, and then, and then I think, I think the other thing for Dove, uh, sadly is that it, it was, it was an inability to, to delegate to uh, bring on sort of qualified operators that he, he that he would actually trust and work with. So, you know, when when it was a vertically integrated company and he had his hands and everything, and it it, it had a hundred employees, it, it worked. When it had a thousand employees, it was difficult, but it worked. When it had five thousand employees, it was difficult, but it worked. But when he had you know two hundred and fifty stores in twenty countries and twelve thousand employees, the idea that like. He had, like, I was, I was a direct report, right? Which is fine. But Dove probably also had a thousand, like literally 1000 other direct reports. <laughs> and, and like, I remember you, I, I How remember, often I, did you get a one-on-one with him? Too often. That's actually my point is I remember, I remember, <laughs> uh, I was talking to someone about this the other day. I remember I had an employee and they made, you know, let's say 15 bucks an hour and they wanted to raise and, uh, and uh, so I wanted to pay them $16 an hour. I remember that involved me calling Dove five times and meeting about him, meeting him in person about it. And you're like, okay, okay this is a thousand dollars. You know, we're talking, this is a $700 million company and we just spent, you know, several hours of your time. So it, it, it would have been worth it for me just to pay them a thousand dollars out of my own pocket, not to, you know, not to. So th- there was just, I remember one day I, I looked out of my office at the American Apparel Factory and, and Dove was directing traffic. Like there had been, a, they were doing some construction and there was a problem and, and he was directing traffic. And I think I remember pointing this out to someone and they were like, yeah, that like, what a great leader, like he'll do anything. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, that's, that's the problem. Like he's doing everything. Uh, there's a, I think it was Plutarch. He said, you know, a great leader will do anything, but not everything. And, and Dove's problem is that he, he tried to do everything. That, I, to me, that was a big one. Uh, what a character. And, you know, I had completely lost track of him, of course, uh, cause it was, I don't know that we called it that in Canada at the time, but, you know, plus or minus middle school, right? Sure. So it'd been a long time. And then when the company took off and his profile took off, I went, how many Dove Charneys can there be? Sure, sure. <laughs> that sounds like the same guy. <laughs> uh, now, the other one I'm dying to sort of dig into you uh, with, uh, w- with you on is um, I-, I loved uh, Conspiracy and, and, you know, the sort of inside look at what happened at Gawker. And I have a particular point of view about Gawker itself, but I don't want to contaminate you. Oh, I'd love to hear that. Uh, well, well, I'll get to my opinion, but um, 
again, with some reflection, because it's been a while since that book came out, um, what, what's your general impression of the demise of, of Gawker? You know, it's a, it's a weird thing. And the, the more I write, the more I, I tend to find that there's like sort of no clean or easy way to look at any of these things. So it's this weird story where on the one hand, I think Gawker was probably much worse than anyone thought. And what Teal did was probably more heroic than other people thought. And, and then the irony that, <clears throat> that, that that sort of a bullying media would 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 be the problem we'd be like that 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 problem feels almost quaint in retrospect you know um it, 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 media has gotten so much worse in in some ways so much more important than other ways and you know just the irony that 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 teal would would take this huge stand um and and really put himself on the line and sort of do this thing because he felt like this sort of internet bullying and the quality of our discourse was like so important. And then to turn around and back Trump, who, who sort of on a regular basis tweets from a position of far more power, you know, <laughs> far more divisive sort of, uh, you know, um, you know, mean things. I don't know. It's just, it's so, it's so complicated. And so I think, when I look at that book, and the book is done well, and and, and I'm I'm certainly proud of it. I, I but I look at like a book like Bad Blood, which has been this you know sort of monster hit, and I think, oh, uh, what I what I would have done for a much cleaner, easier story where the villain was obvious and the good guy was obvious. You know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't. I think that book could have sold more copies if I made Peter the, um, you know, the the irredeemable villain. Or it could have sold more copies with people on the right if I'd made him this sort of unmitigated hero. But instead, it's kind of a dirty, complicated story where, where in the end, you're not quite sure who was the good guy and who was the bad guy. But that's just a reality of life, I suppose. Well, I applaud you for writing it. It's a fascinating book. And, and the thing that um, I didn't get as it played out, and, you know, listen, it's been a few years and a uh, several scotches ago. So excuse me if I'm getting it wrong here, Ryan, but as I remember it, um, it felt like a lot of people were very supportive of Gawker and, and, you know, freedom of speech and freedom of the press and all this sort of stuff. And the whole time I looked at it and went, they published a homemade porno movie off of Hulk Hogan's fucking phone or computer or whatever that somebody got via hacking. Is, is that what happened? It was actually, it was actually worse than that. So Hulk Hogan, and it's a, it's a, it's a strange story again, where there's no good guys or bad guys, but Hulk Hogan was having sex with his best friend's wife with his best friend's permission. What his best friend had not told him is that he'd hidden. Me and my buddies practice shit like this all the time. Don't you do that with your buddies? Who who doesn't? Who doesn't? But but his friend had hidden a camera in a smoke alarm on the ceiling. And so his friend was secretly taping him. And then somebody stole that tape and leaked it to Gawker. As it happens, it was the same attorney who later tried to shop the... uh, Stormy Daniels' silence to Donald Trump in the run-up of the 2016 election. So none of these were good people. But but you're right. The the 
I think freedom of speech is one issue. If Gawker had decided to write about the existence of this tape, we would not be having this discussion. But what Gawker did was decide to run, uh, you know, a two, a roughly a two minute tape stolen of two consenting adults having sex in a private bedroom. They consented to the sex, but not to being filmed. Right. And so, you know, that, that, that I think any reasonable person would admit is a, you know, an appalling violation of someone's privacy. And so this was the part I didn't understand. I forgot that detail that it was his buddy who did it. Jeez. But, um, and I'm wondering when our laws or, and I actually want to ask you this question, if you think our laws might get to this place, but um, to me, Gawker didn't have a leg to stand on because of that exact fact. And so F you, you never should have done this and you deserve to go out of business um, because of it. And I wonder if we're going to get to a place where like today, the media can take a photo on your Instagram and publish it in the New York times. And Mm -hmm. there's not a goddamn thing you can do to stop them. And I wonder if we're going to get a place, get to a place that says that media that we create ourselves of ourselves is owned by ourselves and you can't scrape it without permission. Yeah. Do you think we get to that place one day? I think it's complicated. I mean, that was actually, so, so what happened for people who don't know is that basically Gawker outed Peter Thiel as gay uh, without his permission. And he, he found this to be an appalling sort of violation of his privacy. And he set out to do something about it. It happens that outing someone as gay is not illegal. So he went and looked for, he said, someone who would do something as fucked up as this probably does other messed up things that may or may not be more uh, clearly illegal. And so, so one of the things he actually did look at was like copyright violations. And, and so some things you can take from other people, some things you can't, but like what that was one of the, one of the cases he was going to take against Gawkers. Where have they, like, you know, let's say, let's say they routinely take people's photos and the, the sort of, you know, the copyright fine is X. You times that by, you know, 10,000, all of a sudden that's a, you know, a life or death judgment. So he's looking at those, but ultimately he ended up settling on this Hulk Hogan case because it was the most sort of egregious. Um, but, but I think what, 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 what was really at stake, like it was objectively illegal, like, not illegal, but it was very, it was a matter of pretty, clear law in Florida that you couldn't take and publish the the tape that they did of Hulk Hogan. Now, what's interesting about that and what I think people tend to miss about our legal system is just because something is illegal or just because you have a case does not mean you could win said case, right? So Gawker, even though they, they were pretty clearly in the wrong, spent $10 million litigating this case. And Hulk Hogan could have never afforded to pay for that himself. And so, so, you know, what's interesting is that, um, it was only be- like people go, Oh, this is unfair. Uh, you know, a billionaire funded a lawsuit. Well, this was, this was a hundred million dollar website fighting a professional wrestler. And in that fight, Gawker was the bully. Gawker was the one that had a, an unlimited bank account that they were willing, you know, to, to throw at this person. And it was only when Peter sort of secretly put his, his finger on the scale that, that he was able to even things out. 
Um, and how so, long did it take before the world knew that Peter was funding uh, the Hulk Hogan case? So he was outed in 2007 and the Gawker verdict and then and then Teal's ultimate sort of reveal was in March of 2016. So it was like eight or nine years that he sort but of was the case over by that point or did we? Yeah, learn, yeah, he, I can't remember was, now. We learned during the a, case. It was about a month after the verdict. So he went the entire that's what I thought. He went the entire case without anybody knowing that he was in the background. He was the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, and, and what's so interesting about that is when people didn't know he was involved, it was uh, the, the, the opinion was much more evenly split. Like plenty of people, even in the media, believed that Gawker deserved to lose that case. Went, but it was only when it when it was suddenly revealed that a billionaire had funded it that their opinions changed. So it's kind of an interesting experiment. You know, people are like, "Well, why didn't you tell us? You know, you were you were behind this from the beginning." And it's like, "Well, because when you could see it more objectively, you had a different opinion than than when you ultimately found out who was responsible." So it's, a, it's I'm, an I'm infinitely complex case. What your take is? now um about the reaction that silicon valley had at the time towards peter on all this stuff and sort of um maybe if you have any sort of sense of sort of how the digerati or cognoscenti of silicon valley views him now yeah i mean i think i think the gawker case is almost secondary you know just sort of back trump uh was was something that you know Silicon Valley decided they, they could not stomach. And so, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not a Trump supporter. Uh, on the other hand, I, I do tend to support people who do, you know, who, who are willing to sort of put their reputation on the line to, to sort of do what they, what they personally believe in. So, you know, I, I, Teal, Teal basically sort of felt the full wrath of, of Silicon Valley's, not an outsider because I mean, his, his reputation, and his, his track record is is like the best maybe in the world, but you know there are people who will not accept money from from Peter Thiel's venture funds because of 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 sort of the fallout of this case, and then ultimately his decision to back Trump. So you know it it, it was not a cost free decision by any means for him to to do these things. Yeah, the interesting thing for me, this is a side note, and I I don't want to get into a big political discussion. I don't generally talk about that stuff, but. Um, Silicon Valley and this part of the world is very, very liberal, of course. And um, I consider myself an independent. I'm not associated with any party. There's things about the Democrats I think are awesome and stupid. And same thing about the uh, GOP. And so uh, there is not really a party for me. But anyway, all, all that said, when you say anything around here that is remotely supportive of the president, it's generally not good at all. You know, like even something like, you know, one thing that I would say at a cocktail party or whatever is, well, if Hillary had won and the economy was the way it is right now, the Dems would be crowing about the economy. And more often than not, Ryan, or at least around here, you'll tell me what I hear is, yeah, but, you know, wealth distribution and blah, 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 and they just go off on a whole set of issues. And it's like, OK, I'm not saying the economy's. Per I'm not saying anything other than what I just said. But even stating a fact like that in this part of the world can get people's ire up. Oh, totally. And, and I think that that is what I came to admire the most about Teal. It's it's not that, you know, his sort of reputation is that he's a contrarian. 
I actually don't think that he's a contrarian. I think that he thinks for himself. So he come like he has this remarkable ability to come up with, you know, opinions or plans or ideas about the world that are almost like painfully unaware of what other people will think about what he thinks. So I think what's remarkable about, you know, his it's like when he backed Trump, it wasn't like he said, well, people are really going to hate me for this, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's more like, this is what I think. This is what I'm going to do. And then he's kind of caught off guard by how how instantaneous the reaction is. And the same for the Gawker thing. I think he knew it was better to be secret, but I think he genuinely thought when when he eventually was revealed that people would, you know, cheer for him a little bit. But, uh, but you know, it was the opposite. <laughs> and so, I, I, you know, I... I that's something I admire about him and I, I seek to have in my own life. I mean, I, I want to operate by my own code and I want to do what I think is right. But but the idea of like thinking independently and, and being less conscious, less conscious of what other people think. It, it, it's like when you're thinking for yourself, sometimes you're going to be wrong. But when you're uh, but you're also going to be right in a big way in a lot of times. Um, but when you're just it's like if you just do what everyone else is doing and you just think what everyone else is thinking, you know, you, you're you're sort of uh, relying on the safety of the herd, and and I, I just don't I just don't particularly admire that. So this is something I've been dying to dig into with you, and, and you sort of teased it a little bit earlier when you talked about how in a lot of ways your books are about questions and 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 so forth, and so. You strike me as somebody who's trying to stoke a dialogue and some thinking and maybe some debate and discussion on a set of topics. That, that's my experience of you. Is that yeah, definitely that feel right? And so here's the aha or here's the aha that I get to that I want to kind of bounce off your brain. It feels like we've gotten to a place in a lot of our world where there's this sort of argument about right and wrong and this fighting with each other. And the value in the communication is I win. And so you and I engage in a conversation and I'm, my job is to win the conversation, is to be right. And I think thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. And I think a powerful way that we think is by communicating with each other and batting ideas around like a ping pong ball and, and unpacking them. And, you know, I, I have many friends who are debate champions and I love good debaters because they know how to take either position or a third or fourth position or what have you. And so here's where I'm getting to. Um, are you sort of, you appear to be somebody who values the dialogue more than the conclusion of the dialogue. Is that part of what you're up to here? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think so. I mean, I, I, th- I think what I'm trying to, to do in my books is, is to, is to prevent, is to present different ideas and, and to accept that certain situations call for certain things and other situations call for other things. And sometimes those things contradict each other. You know, like, um, uh, my, my mentor as a writer is this guy named Robert Greene, who wrote a book called The 48 Laws of Power. And one of the, the interesting criticisms that I think is always revealing is they go, you know, the law, some of the laws contradict each other. You know, sometimes he's saying you should do X, but then other times he's saying you should do Y. And Robert's point is always, 
yeah, like welcome, welcome to life, buddy. Like sometimes you have to do one thing and other situations call for the exact opposite of things. And it's only someone who thinks that the world can be reduced to, you know, if this, then that kind of mentality it is, is not flexible enough to make it work. So I think, I think what I'm trying to do in my, in my books is, is just, yeah, present ideas and things to think about stories that you'll remember, you know, sort of plant ideas in your head. Um, and, 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 and be open and willing to consider a lot of different things. One of my favorite quotes from Epictetus, he says, um, uh, if you are offended, remember you are complicit in the offense. And what he means is that like, it takes two to tango. Like so what somebody says is objective. The decision to, to, to categorize that as mean or aggressive or, you know, violent or whatever, the, like that, that's on you. And so I, I do want to, I do want to entertain different ideas. I want to like, in stillness, like I'm illustrating, you know, stoic ideas with stories from Zen philosophy and vice versa. Um, because, because I, I always want to be seeking out disparate ideas and diverse ideas. And I think that's ultimately how you learn and, and how you sort of triangulate real truths. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. And I, I don't know how you figured out how to make a living doing everything you just said, but I sure am stoked you did. I'm, I'm not sure either. I think I think there's some luck there, but then I think also like, look, when you treat your readers and your audiences like an like an adult, you know, you treat them like adults. They often rise to the to the level of discourse. But I think when you assume that they're stupid and you you sort of pander to the lowest common denominator, you end up not not reaching you know a, a, as many people as you can, and and I think you ultimately kind of make make people worse. Well. And look, I probably harp on this too much, but you know, there's so many of the, like one of the worst things you can describe yourself as to me today is an influencer, right? Sure, sure. Like that whole thing, starting with the Kardashians all the way through all of them, right? Mm-hmm. Drives me nuts. And one of the things I take my hat off to you about, Ryan, is you're a guy who's engaged in a public debate and dialogue. And like other legends, um, you're not stooping to these moronic, pablomatic, bullshit, you know, TikTok, yada, yada, hustle porn, asshole, buy my crap stuff, right? I, I don't, do you, do you ever remember Tom Vu? Does that name ring a bell to you no, at all? No, So <laughs> you'll go appreciate this. Um, so Tom Vu is the creator of essentially the modern infomercial. Oh. And I forget where he was from, but he was Asian somewhere. And so he had an accent and he was selling a real estate course uh, at like 3 a.m. and shit. Right. And so he would speak with his accent and he, he'd be on the back of a boat and there'd be like four or five women in bikinis behind him. And he would give his speech about, you know, I came to America with one dollar and now here I am on my boat. And then, you know, in front of his Rolls Royces in his giant house and you know, all this stuff. And, you know, so today you see all these hustle porn star guys it's the doing same the thing, same yeah. thing right? <laughs> and you have not stooped to that level. <laughs> Well, You're I, I not, not Kardashianizing yourself. Well, it, it is funny though, because sometimes I'll, people go like, oh, like he's just trying to like sell his books. Like would Seneca have charged for his books? And it's like, 
Look, I get your point, but Seneca also had slaves who did all his work for him. So I, I, I do, I do favor, you know, earning an honest living by, by sort of writing ideas and selling them for a fair price or, you know, making products and selling them for a fair price. I don't have any problem with commerce at the same time. Like I want to be able to look myself in the mirror and go, like, I'm, I'm being me. I'm being true to the ideas that I believe in. And I, I'm not stooping to, as you said, uh, the, the sort of grossness that uh, certain people have, have seem to have no trouble stooping to. <laughs> I love you for it. Anything else you want to touch on, Ryan, before we kick out? No, this was this was awesome. Uh, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it as well. Keep up the good work, my friend, and you're welcome back anytime. I would love that. We'll talk soon. Thank you, brother. Well, there he is. Um... I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you so much. All right. We would like to thank the legendary Ryan Holiday. Thanks so much for coming on, Ryan. His new book is out now and available. It's a fantastic read. I highly recommend it. It's called Stillness is the Key. My good friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org. This is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out. The number one, LifeFullyLive.org. One of my all-time favorite podcasts. Uh, he is uh, one of the OGs, the original gangsters in the podcast world. Jordan Harbinger of the Jordan Harbinger Show, and uh, you know he's been at it for well over a decade. And I swear he's getting better. Check him out, the Jordan Harbinger Show, wherever you get legendary podcasts. Now, do you um, do your people think that your company is awesome? That's an interesting question, isn't it? My friends at Socrates.ai are the digital communications hub, and they want to help you build a company that is employee awesome. Imagine your people could text or talk into their smart devices any HR question and get an answer back. That's Socrates, and that's awesome. Check out S-O-C-R-A-T-E-S dot A-I today. That's Socrates dot A-I. And, um... Are you feeling a little overwhelmed? Uh, is it time to help scale yourself? Then my friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants are there to help you out. Check out bottleneck.online and uh, inquire about the power of a virtual assistant at bottleneck.online. And are you a thought leader? Why not get some of your leading thoughts on uh, leading podcasts? My friends at interviewvalet.com can uh, book you on some of the world's leading podcasts. Check them out, interviewvalet.com. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and all rights do remain perturbed. Uh, we must warn you that clearly this podcast is created in a studio that does contain nuts. We are produced by the legendary Jamie J. and Sarah Knox, edited by Mike D., and show notes are by Diane Gervasio. Special shout-outs to Josh Wade, Mitchell Earl, John Woodcock for your kind tweets, uh, Marco Gali. Jorgen Abu. Jeez, I hope I'm saying that right, Jorgen. <laughs> Nicole Branford, Michelle Waite, uh, Taylor Jarvis, all of you, thank you for your wonderful LinkedIn notes. And Tom Schwab, Donna Luisa, jeez uh, Louise, Donna Lisa Albini, Sean Douglas, Peter Stamp, and uh, anyone else who's been kind on Facebook lately, thank you so much. Also want to thank Lori Ward and Stephanie Brody for their help making this episode happen. Thank you, as always, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Nick Denton, founder of Gawker. Sorry, Nikki, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with me. And um, 
Stay legendary, and of course, until we're together again, follow your different. <laughs>